in the book of Acts so far, the church, while it has been in the, the, the infant state, it has been foundational in that foundational period. Everything has been good. It's just been one good event after another. Through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the church was born on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people got saved. They immediately started having good habits. Remember, they continued in the apostles' doctrine, which is the teaching or the word of God, in prayers, in fellowship and breaking bread. And the Bible says, and God added to the church daily those who were being saved. God started to attest to the apostles by miracles, by healing a man who had been lame for 40 years that sat at the gate beautiful and begged. And there was such a commotion that 2,000 people got saved when they started looking at Peter as if Peter had, did it, had done it. And Peter said, why are you looking at me? It wasn't me. It was Jesus Christ whom you crucified, who is risen from the dead that has brought this man and healed him. And 2,000 people got saved. But at the same time, there was the, the start of opposition. It was then that the Sanhedrin came in and because they were claiming Jesus had risen from the dead and now we've got somewhere around 20,000 people that are in the church by the time that was done that, that the Sanhedrin didn't believe in the resurrection and they had him arrested overnight and Peter pointed out the absurdity of that arrest. He said, if we are being, if we are being held because a lame man has been healed, then we will obey God rather than you. Like, this, this is why you guys arrested us? And they got together and said, we can't do anything because that a miracle has been done is obvious. So they threatened them and they threatened them again. They gathered together with the church there in Acts chapter four and they prayed for boldness. And the Bible says the room that they were in was shaken and they spoke the word of God with more boldness, with all boldness. That's what they had prayed for. I had pointed out during that study that if somebody threatened me and said, you better stop preaching in the name of Jesus or else, you know, we're gonna, something's gonna happen. I would pray, Lord, please don't let anything happen and give me boldness. I love that they didn't pray that. I love that they just prayed for boldness. They were like, let the consequences fall where they fall. We, want, we will be bold for Christ no matter what happens. And I love that. And then there was a statement that the early church was somewhat like a commune. And this is an interesting statement. And I just read it at the end of our study uh, two weeks ago. Last week was, was Mother's Day. But two weeks ago, I read it at the end of it. And I wanted to come back and break down what's happening here because it's unique and it only happens for a while. This is the passage that people go to to say communism is in the Bible. They try to pr promote communism by this passage. It was not communism but there was somewhat of a commune that was involved in it. Let's look at it and I'll clarify. Uh, so in Acts 4, I know you're open at verse 5, but go back to 4, verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Now, now note that, we're going to get this through the book of Acts, that there, there is unity among the church. Now this is all there is. Today, there's two billion, over 2 billion Christians on at least those who claim to be Christians on planet Earth. There's a bunch of differences among us. And sometimes we won't even have fellowship with other Christians who believe in Jesus, believe that he rose from the dead, 
who believe that he was born of a virgin, but because we have other differences with them, we have division. I'm all for unity. And I think we should have unity within the church. But the unity has to be around Christ. It's got to be Christ-centered unity. If you don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that he rose from the dead and he gave his life for our sins and you can trust in him to be saved, then, then there's not going to be any unity even though you call yourself a Christian. So they had one heart and one mind, but they were unified over these essential things. And there are certain things that are essential and we cannot have unity unless we have those essentials. So they had one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things they possessed was their own. They had all things in common. So there's where the claim of communism comes in. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Can you imagine being in the church in those days, gathering together with the apostles who gave great, they, they attested to Jesus being resurrected from the dead? Peter would get up and tell his account of Jesus talking to him after he was, had risen from the dead. And then Thomas would get up and go, and I didn't want to put my hands, and I said, my Lord and my God. And these are eyewitness accounts. No wonder the early church grew at such a rapid rate there in Jerusalem where these things had happened. And they're giving, uh, as it says here, that the apostles are attesting to the, the work uh, that he had done. It goes on to say, and great grace was given to them all. Now, now I want that for us as well. Great grace being given to us all. That God's grace would fall upon us. The, fr the free gift of God on each of us. Great grace was given upon them all. Nor was anyone among them who lacked. For all who possessed the lands and the houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. So if you had need, you came to the apostles and, and people that had stuff brought them to the apostles for the apostles to be able to give it out. Now, the apostles are doing all of it now. This is the point in the church where the apostles are doing it all. They are not going to do it all forever. There's going to be the choosing of the deacons, which will oversee the physical needs of the church, while the apostles will teach uh, the word of God. They will, they will pray and they will be in the word of God. So they, they, they come to a point where they have to make a decision what they're going to do. We planted the church in 1985. We had six people at our first Bible study and I did everything. I did things I shouldn't do, like prepare the bulletin because I'm not great with grammar and spelling. And I shouldn't have done that. We, that's one of the first things that we did was get somebody who was to do the bulletin because I was doing everything. I was doing it all. But as the church grew, then, then people who were better at areas than I was began to come in and do those things. And listen, if, you're, if God's calling you to be a pastor, one of the very important things to understand is that you want to surround yourself with people who are better than you at what you do. That's what you want. You want, you know, how God compliments his marriages by bringing two people together who are able to, to help one another out and do things effectively. Like I still don't spell great, but my wife is the best speller ever. I don't do grammar great. She's an editor and a writer. I mean, so it just, God just knows how to do these and God will do that as well with us. So there's this event where 
the apostles are overseeing the funds. Now, churches today still have benevolence funds. Churches today still meet the needs of people who are in need. Our, our church, I don't know whether we are unique in the way we do it. I'm on the board of several other churches, and I do know that they do it the same way we do it. So we have two funds, one for those that attend the church and one for those who don't attend the church. And if you find yourself in financial need, then you can talk to one of our deacons, call the church office, set it up, they'll contact you, and to see if we can help you out. Uh, sometimes people are upset because they'll come to church and they have a, an immediate need, and we don't have anything set up to give them that immediate help. So you're gonna have to look forward a little bit, all right? And I realize that sometimes emergencies happen and sometimes we may be able to make exceptions to that. We've got a certain way that we do these things, but we do have it as well because this is what the church is supposed to do is meet the needs of the people that are struggling, that are lacking anything because there were people lacking there and there are people who are lacking today. So it goes on to say they brought them to the feet of the apostles. Now, this isn't a church service, okay? This is the apostles doing administration, they're probably doing what they shouldn't be doing at this point. They're taking in the gifts from people and they're giving the gifts out. It's probably distracting them away from what the apostles are supposed to be doing. But this is the way that they're doing it. This isn't, they're not coming together for a church service and people aren't walking up in the church service and putting their money at the feet of the apostles, okay? This is some kind of an administrative house or building where they're bringing the money into the apostles. That's important to remember. Because whenever people tell this, they always tell it like it's a church service. It's not a church service, all right? Um, and then it says, and they distributed to each one as they had a need. And Joseph, who was also Barnabas, by, uh, who was named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement. This is the Barnabas who's gonna become a traveling companion of Paul. A Levite, note that he knew he was a Levite, we have people in the Bible who are from Asher, from Levi, from Benjamin, from Judah, uh, from, from uh, several other places. So when people talk about the lost tribes of Israel, there are no lost tribes of Israel, okay? So there's cults out there that say, we are the lost tribes of Israel. No, they're not. And the lost tribes of Israel are not the Europeans, okay? And the black Hebrew Israelites, are not the lost children of Israel. And if you have anything to do with that particular cult, that particular group, they are very, um, there's a lot of anger involved in that. So just know that. If you're gonna interact with black Hebrew Israelites, there's gonna be a lot of anger. I call it venom uh, that comes out. And what they're doing is just trying to get you to back off when you start to, do, like you point out, wait a minute, you say that there's lost 10 tribes, well then how come uh, Barnabas was from Levi? They knew where people were from. Remember the, well, there were just several places. Uh, in, the, in the temple when Jesus was brought in, there was another tri uh, tribe that was represented there. They knew where they were from during this time. They will lose it after the Romans take Jerusalem, but right now they know, and there are people that represent it there. It doesn't mean that there aren't more from Judah in Jerusalem, but there are no lost tribes of Israel. The 10 tribes were taken captive by the Assyrians, but some of them came back into the land. When, when Judah came back from Babylon, some of them came back from Assyria. And so all of the tribes were represented during the days of Jesus. All right, little tirade on the side. All right, probably only for you guys because I don't have time to get into that in the morning. 
Um, a Levite from the country of Cyprus, having long sold it, or, or having land sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the feet of the apostle, the apostles. Now, I have a problem with this. I have a problem with the way that they are, they are doing this. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deed before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So the people were selling everything and taking it to the feet of the apostles and people knew that they were doing that goes exactly against what Jesus said. And you say, well, these are the apostles. Yeah, and they are people that don't do things right sometimes. In Matthew 6, 3 and 4, it says, but when you do your charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing that your charitable deed may be seen in secret and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. It's not supposed to be done so people can see it. That leads to a problem. The Bible sometimes is prescriptive and sometimes it is descriptive. Prescriptive from the Bible is when the Bible says, and um, it gives you an account of someone, you know, and they, the passage where it says, uh, they continue steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, in prayer, in fellowship, and breaking of bread. That's prescriptive. We want to do that too. But when the Bible says that something happened like this, it's descriptive. It's just saying it happened. It's not telling us we have to do it. That's part of properly dividing the word of God. You realize that just because a story is in the Bible doesn't mean that God is for it or doesn't mean God wanted it. God tells all kinds of things that happened that are horrible things that are just descriptive. They're just telling us descriptions. Now, atheists and critics love to point out those, those things as if they're prescriptive. But your response is, the Bible is just telling us what happened. It doesn't, it's not telling us that we're to do those things or that God was behind those things or that God wanted to do those things. Those are the prescriptive things. They were prescribed instead of just described. So this is just described. God didn't want this. We don't see God ever telling them to do this. It says now, um, and also we're gonna see that Satan begins to move in opposition here within the church. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So does it surprise you that it's around money that Satan gets in? The first time we hear Satan in the church is around money. Now the enemy will attack from the inside. We saw the first attack of the enemy from the outside and that was the Sanhedrin who arrested them and threatened them and warned them. Now the enemy attacks from the inside. This is always the case with the church, by the way. There are always attacks from the outside and there are always people who will be rise, risen up and, and used by Satan on the inside. Listen to what Paul said to the Ephesian elders. Paul was on his way to Jerusalem, which would eventually go to Rome. He knew he was saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders for good. And so Paul says this to them in Acts 20, 29 through 31. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. 
there will be attacks from the outside. Savage wolves are going to come in. Not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn you every, everyone night and day with tears. So he speaks of the attack from the outside and men being raised up from the inside. So we have seen the attack from the outside earlier with the Sanhedrin, and now we see the attack on the inside. And that's where we pick it up in verse 1 of Acts chapter 5. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it. They brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, they, they've, they don't have to give all of it. They could keep some back if they want to. They don't have to do this. But they're coming in and pretending like it is everything they sold. That becomes clear here in a moment. And they've, they've together decided to do this. This is the first sin to enter the church. This is the first deception that we find inside the church. And it's two people who are envious of what Barnabas has done. That's what I'm reading. I said I had a problem with them bringing money and laying it at the apostles' feet because people could stand back and go, my, you just, how wonderful, Barnabas, you are. And then Ananias and Sapphira are like, we, we, want, we, want, we want to be like Barnabas. We want to get applause. We want people to know that we gave, but we don't want to give everything. And so they bring it in, uh, Ananias brings it in, lays it at his feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? This is the demonic work, the attack on the church. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. This is Satan. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained... Was it not your own? In other words, you didn't have to sell it. And after it was sold, was it not in your control? In other words, you didn't have to say you're giving it all. You didn't have to act like you were giving it all. Was it not in your, your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? So now we have Satan filling his heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. He conceived this own plan in his heart. Then he says, you have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. This is one of the passages that we go to to prove the Holy Spirit is God. You have not lied to man. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. Then it says, or you have not lied to men. You've lied to God. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? This is a reference to the Holy Spirit as being God. Now, First of all, again, this is not a church service, okay? It's not like they were, all, they were all singing and praising God and then Ananias brought it up. And I don't know why people teach it that way, but I hear it taught that way. I, commentaries write it that way, but there's no reason for us to believe that it's a church service. It's just the daily operation of the church. And a, a few things to point out. 
We know Satan is involved and we know this is, this is the first time that he is named within the church. Now we, know, we knew he would show up sooner or later. We knew he was going to attack because the Bible tells us that. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 says to us, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, which means accuser, slanderer, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. This is, this is Christianity. Satan is looking for ways to attack. The verse you know very well, Ephesians 6, 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Whatever battle you got going on now, whatever difficulty you've got in your life, it's not flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and against rulers of darkness of this age and a host of wickedness in heavenly places. So that passage goes, goes on to say, put on the full armor of God. And once you put on the full armor of God, then stand and pray. And don't be unaware of the schemes of the enemy. So the enemy makes his way in. He fills the heart of Ananias. Now, there are a lot of very dogmatic people about whether or not Ananias is a genuine Christian. There are those who are like, he, he, I, I do not believe that Ananias was a genuine Christian. I don't think that he really knew the Lord. I don't believe it. I don't think it's possible. I don't think that, you know, that... When someone becomes that dogmatic, there's, there's almost always a problem. Look out for that in teaching when instead of giving evidence, someone stands on dogmatism. This is what's true. This is what's right. You've got to believe it. I believe it with all. And that's just you're being dogmatic. Evidence is, here's why I think this is true. This is what it says. And I think we can come to the conclusion that here's what it says. In debates, when you're debating someone, if someone gets dogmatic and, and, and stands on dogmatism instead of evidence, it's a mistake. It's something you're never supposed to do. As soon as your opponent goes to dogmatism, now you've got an open door because there's no evidence when you're being dogmatic. And the evidence that you bring up when you're being that dogmatic is usually overstated. And so they'll say that Ananias wasn't a Christian and Sapphira wasn't a real Christian. And they'll say that because it says Satan filled their heart. And in the book of Ezekiel, it says that I will give them a new heart. I will put a new spirit within them. And okay, so we follow it and we go, all right. And, and to, to be truthful, the people who are saying that, I probably would have given them a little bit more room had they not been so dogmatic. But when someone gets super dogmatic up front, they're dogmatic for a reason. And so they, they say, well, you know, God's given us a new heart, so you can't have your heart filled by something with Satan. But if you start looking around the Bible to see what the Bible says about the heart of the Christian, you find in James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. It's talking to Christians. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. So for us to think that as Christians, we could not have our hearts, which is, I'm going to call it our intentions, in, influenced by Satan, 
But the Bible says, give no place to the enemy. Just because God's given us a new heart. Yes, God has taken away our heart of stone. Yes, he's given us a new heart. I wish it was like these guys say to where with my new heart, I didn't have any more problems. I was never prone to be jealous. I was never prone to, you know, whatever I'm struggling with, right? I was just not prone for those things because I have a new heart. So I don't have any struggles. I don't know whether Ananias and Sapphira were believers. I just don't know. And I, I don't think that we know. They are numbered among the apostles. You can go back into the last chapter where it says they all had one heart and one soul. And people will argue it two ways. One will say they had one heart and one soul. So Ananias and Sapphira must have been Christians because they had one heart and one soul and they were part of the group. Another group will say they had one heart and one soul, but they wanted to cheat and lie. And so they weren't really part of the group. So they weren't Christians. So they used the same passage to say they were Christians and they weren't Christians. They're just things we are not going to know. Why, do, why would they get so dog, dogmatic about it? Because this is a strange account. Because if they're Christians, God's about to kill a Christian. And that's hard to cover. That's hard to go, God killed them. It's hard to do. Why? And it's hard to say, why is God not going to kill you? If God killed them, then why won't God kill you if you do something that's dishonest? That's hard to deal with. But I don't think the way to deal with it is by trying to deny whether or not they're Christians. That's not the issue. If that were important, it would be said. So the assumption is they are part of the group. That's the assumption. Will Ananias and Sapphira be in heaven? We don't really know. All right. So verse five, here we go. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. Now, to be fair, it doesn't say God killed him, right? It says he fell down and breathed his last. I don't know, you know, Ananias might have had a heart problem. When Peter called him out, <gasps> had a heart attack and died. Maybe. It becomes more unlikely in a few moments. A couple of things could be said here because by the time this church is spreading, number one, God wants to keep the early church pure because they need to be strong as a small but quickly growing work of God. There needs to be, be a sense of purity and holiness in the beginning of the church because it is going to spread like wildfire and within two decades, it's going to go as far as Rome. It's going to spread around the, around the known world at an incredible rate. It's going to eventually spread all around the world and Jesus said it would happen. Wherever the gospel is preached, what this woman did will be told as a memorial to her. Here we are in Tucson and we're looking at the, the scriptures that Jesus said that it would spread around the world. And so could it be that he could not allow there to be those who had either were non-believers who wanted to look their tares, but they wanted to look like wheat or those who were Christian, but they had major compromise. And God just wasn't going to allow major compromise at this point because he needed the church to be much more powerful to be able to do the work that he's done. Now, by the time we get to 
Galatians being written, Corinth being written, there's all kinds of problems. If God was going to kill people because, if God was going to kill Christians because they compromised, then he'd have killed everybody at Corinth. They'd have all been gone because the church had all kinds of problems. So this is something when it is very small, doing a very significant work, it's like the very roots or the very foundation of the church itself. And perhaps God did this to Ananias and Sapphira in order to keep purity in the church. Have another thought. Maybe God, and this is me assuming that God killed them, okay? Because it doesn't say it. I have another thought. God wanted to show the severity of sin by making an example of sin when it first came into the church. God wanted to show the severity of sin by handling it severely when it first came into the church. I, I, I'm persuaded we don't know how bad sin is. We are the frog in the water that's been heated up. We don't really understand it. Jesus took our sin on the cross. And I think there was a time in history where people understood much better how severe sin is to a holy God. But I think we've lost that. I think the church is losing that more and more. In God, there is no shifting of shadows our heart is desperately wicked, is what the Old Testament says. And people don't like that desperately wicked anymore. The, the, the God is basically good. I mean, man is basically good argument is growing. Now, I also don't believe in, um, in Calvinism, there's a term total depravity. And I had um, for years said that I was a three-point Calvinist that total depravity was one of the areas that I believed in. I don't, I don't call myself any of the points now, and I could go over them all now, but I won't. But because I don't agree with, with Calvinism in total depravity because when they say that someone is totally depraved, they say that they are un, unable to be saved. The person is so totally depraved, he's unable to be saved and will not be because he is totally depraved. And Calvinists will use words like vipers in diapers to talk about babies. That they're just wicked. That a little bitty baby is wicked at heart. Now, I think they've gone too far. On the other side, there are people who will say, well, people are basically good and I don't understand why God would judge anyone. And the balance is, is in the middle. And we probably all know our own hearts. And we know our tendency to justify what's in our hearts as not being as bad as what was in someone else's heart. And so God may here indeed be giving an example. Now this happened in the Old Testament when God gave the law and the law was given to show people sin, right? That's why the law was given. So when the law was given and they gave them the Sabbath command on the first Sabbath, a guy defiantly went out and gathered firewood on the Sabbath. They were supposed to keep the Sabbath now and they had rules. So you weren't supposed to do any work on it. So here goes the guy out, got firewood. He's been now, okay, it's the Sabbath. So what? He goes and collects firewood. So they get him and they bring him to Moses. And God has him put to death. 
And, and I go, God, he was collecting firewood. Maybe he was cold. And you'd put him to death? It's similar because the law had just started. The law was given. The man blatantly breaks the rules and he is put to death for it. But later on, there's all kinds of people that break the Sabbath and they're not put to death. Ananias and Sapphira, spoiler alert, both die because of their conspiring and God takes their life. It's similar. I wonder if God isn't showing us the severity of sin. Maybe it's something we ought to ponder on and that we ought to really learn. We ought to really take it from both the account of the law and the guy collecting firewood and Ananias and Sapphira coming into the church uh, thinking that they were going to manipulate the system. Now, verse 6 says, And the young men arose and wrapped him, carried him out, and buried him. Now, when you think about burying him, they took him to a tomb, and they put him in the tomb, probably to be cared for later on by the women. Because generally it was the women that cared for the body. With Jesus, we know it was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus that wrapped his body and put spices there. The women came as soon as they could when the Sabbath was over and found that he was risen on the third day. Well, so they, they take him, and they bury him. It doesn't mean they wrapped him in spices and everything. He put him there to be taken care of. And now it was about three hours later when his wife came in. And I do have some questions for Peter here. I think, Peter, you didn't tell her that her husband died? I immediately, I got questions. Uh, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for, such, so, for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came and found her dead and carried her out and buried her with her husband. Now, at this point, the, the people who say that God didn't take their lives will stick to their guns. She just, she may have had a heart attack too. We don't know. Coincidences happen. But Peter announced her death. It's not like she just fell down and died. It doesn't say God killed her. But Peter announced her death. And as we stand back and look at the story, sometimes... The simplest is the truth. Sometimes when you stand back and look at something, the simplest way to look at it is the truth. And it looks like God took their lives, I think maybe for these couple of reasons that I've already talked about. And you say, well, well God, can God kill people? Doesn't he say thou shalt not murder? L listen, God doesn't murder anyone. God takes lives. And God can do that because he's God. What is amazing to me is sometimes I'm asked the question from someone that doesn't believe in the death penalty. They'll say, well, you Christians believe in the death penalty. And how, how can it be that God destroyed people in the flood or killed babies in Sodom and Gomorrah? They'll say, they killed babies in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's interesting though, the person that you get that question from Oftentimes the response is, do you believe that you can kill a baby while it's still in the womb? And their answer is yes. So you think it's okay for you to play God and kill a baby in the womb, but God can't be God 
and decide that a civilization needs to stop existing. It seems to me like a double standard. Seems to me you're, you're critical of God in the very way that you are doing, the very thing that you want. And you say, well, it's not the same. It's, I believe that I have the right to kill my baby. No, you believe that there should be millions of babies killed. That's what you believe. You believe the right to kill babies since Roe versus Wade, which was some 50 million babies, has been a right that's okay. So that's okay. But God judging Sodom and Gomorrah isn't okay. By the way, they've discovered Sodom and Gomorrah, just in case you're interested. So I'll give you more information as that comes about. But they've actually found the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. What a time for them to find that city. So I don't think as a pastor, I have to defend God. I don't think I have to get dogmatic. God didn't kill them and, and they weren't Christians. Hey, look, if God is upset at a believer because of what a believer's doing and God decides to take the life of that believer, we have it in 1 Corinthians when they're not taking communion properly and Paul says some of them died and some of them are sick. So what are we just going to ignore what the scriptures say? It's not unprecedented that God would not discipline someone by taking their lives. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that God's going to take your life because, you know, God's gracious. He's good. His mercies are new every morning. These are rare events. That's why it becomes such a, you know, such a hard thing. But, but our lives truly are in the hands of God. It finally says in verse 12, so great fear came upon the church and upon all who heard these things. It even goes on to say that no one else dared to join them. So this commune kind of remained by itself and the church became more of what the church was supposed to be. This is something that, again, was descriptive. They were doing, but it wasn't what God wanted. And this is the end of the commune. We'll see that when we get into our next study. Now, three things in closing. The Bible says a man without integrity is like a city without walls. In their day, cities had walls and there was protection from roving bandits and, and armies, smaller armies especially, if your city had walls. But if you were a wallless city in their day, then you were in danger. Because any gang, any group of people who decided they want what you had could come and take it. And so a man that doesn't have integrity is like a city without walls. There's gonna be a lot of difficulty in your life. And that's why it's good to get integrity, to walk in integrity. Number two, nothing is hidden from the eyes of God with whom we must give an account. Even as believers, we must give an account. Now, some of it's gonna be wood, hay, and stubble, and some of it's gonna be good, but we will be judged for the things we've done. Not judged like an ungodly person is judged, but we will be judged. And number three, sin is deceptive. We can deceive ourselves and Satan's a deceiver. We talked about this on Wednesday night when we saw Satan in the book of Revelation. It's like a triple whammy. Sin's deceptive. We deceive ourselves and Satan's a deceiver. So we've got to really be on guard that we don't go, it's okay to pretend we gave all of it when we didn't. 
or whatever it might be that you would justify within yourself. This is certainly, certainly a warning to us. If we could be sure about anything, the case in the Old Testament of the guy collecting firewood and the case of Ananias and Sapphira is a warning to us and maybe a sign of God's mercy. Maybe my own compromises should have brought my death, but God's been merciful to me and God's been merciful to you. And I'll double down on I see no reason to defend God on what's happening here. God is our Lord and our Savior and our lives are given to him completely. And we want to live our lives as he gives us direction to live them. And I am so thankful for his mercy and that no one has died during this service. <laughs> Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. It really is rich and powerful and meaningful. And as we look at this account of Ananias and Sapphira, we can see why pastors want to get you off the hook. We can see why they want to say that Ananias and Sapphira were not genuine Christians. And of course, Lord, we don't know. It doesn't say, but we can see why. But Lord, we trust you and we know that you are righteous and that in you is no shifting of shadows. And we know that in our heart is all shadows. So Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace and we thank you for the direction that you've given us. We pray that you would help us to continue in learning and growing through your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.